Hey listeners, thanks for dropping in. I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. Welcome back to Buried Motives. We are so glad you're joining us during the daytime. (laughs) Yes, I don't know if you noticed, but our last couple of episodes we recorded in the evening. Well, let's face it, late at night. And I think we were a little groggy. We had a hard time staying on task sometimes. So hopefully today we're on it and it'll be a little bit better. I am excited though, because last week you told us that you were bringing us a Father's Day case. I am. I do have a Father's Day case for us. Okay, so let's get into it. Okay, but before we start, I feel like we should say Happy Father's Day to all our male listeners out there. And an extra special Happy Father's Day to my dad and to each of our husbands who are wonderful fathers to our children. We appreciate you. Yeah, I guess we do. (laughs) (laughs) I'm joking. Yes, we definitely appreciate you. Happy Father's Day. (laughs) She's going to get in trouble when she gets home for that one. I totally will, but it'll be worth it. That's right. (laughs) But we do appreciate our male listeners. So for all of you who are listening, happy Father's Day. And thanks for listening. For sure. There are multiple reasons why I chose this case today. First, my sister said it would be interesting to hear a case that involved a celebrity. Second, my husband suggested this case because he is a huge wrestling fan and remembers when this case took place. Being one of the youngest out of seven boys, he grew up watching wrestling. And he's never lost the love for it. No, he still is a big wrestling fan. (laughs) He doesn't watch it as much anymore, but those old time wrestlers, he still enjoys reminiscing on those wrestling days. I can still remember watching the VHSs of WrestleMania like six. I think that was my favorite one. Yeah, the Smackdowns, WrestleMania, all those things. And we are going to get into it. So I hope that maybe some of you have heard about some of these wrestlers and know what I'm talking about when we're talking about this life of wrestling. Unfortunately, the man we will be discussing today ended up committing the most unspeakable act that a father possibly can. Sadly, he hurt the people who he should have protected the most. Our killer murdered his wife and son and then took his own life. And I think this might be our first murder-suicide, is it? Oh, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. So there'll be no court documents or anything like that to go through because he does sadly take his own life as well. Does that leave you feeling like justice wasn't served? No, I don't think so. I can see how some people may, but I mean, he did end his own life and sometimes people are given the death penalty as justice. It's true. Saves the taxpayers a lot of money. It saves that family from going to court. Sometimes people get off with a lesser sentence. They get out afterwards. That's true. The victim's family in this case wouldn't have to go through that. Yeah, you make a good point. I have a lot of different feelings as I went through this case, to be honest. So I'm curious to see your thoughts about it when we're done. This case starts in Canada when Christopher Michael Benoit was born on Sunday, May 21st, 1967. Do you remember him as a wrestler? I'm trying to think. I actually don't remember him as a wrestler. Oh, well, I think you will remember because the time that you're talking about, like WrestleMania 6, I'm sure you've probably seen him wrestle if you were watching wrestling at that time. Probably. I was just probably so taken from the other costumes. Probably. Or the muscles. (laughs) It's the costumes, Christy. The costumes I was looking at. The tight pants. (laughs) 
That's totally not what I was thinking. I was picturing the guy, was it the honky tonk man that had like the tassels off his leather jacket and the cowboy hat, the pink cowboy hat? Wasn't that what it was? So funny. I don't know. And Brett the Hitman Hart with his pink glasses. Yep. It was the costumes I was checking out. I promise. Oh, okay. Some of the costumes were pretty cool. Yeah. I'm just kidding. Mm. I have to tease her. <laughs> it's my job as a co-host and friend. <laughs> no. Bright red. <laughs> so Chris was born in Montreal, Quebec to parents Michael and Margaret Benoit. He had one sister named Lori. As a child, his family moved to Western Canada in Edmonton, Alberta. And I read in some accounts that they actually lived in Sherwood Park which is a suburb of Edmonton. And this is where he would spend most of his childhood and teenage years. Chris graduated from Archbishop O'Leary Catholic High School in Edmonton. He could speak English and French fluently. And not all Canadians can. That's right. <laughs> we are a bilingual country, but not all of us can speak both fluently. Especially in the West. Yes. French is much more prevalent in the eastern and central part of Canada. Yeah. Chris had what would be considered a normal childhood. He didn't have any developmental, mental, or medical illnesses. However, when he was six years old, he did sustain a head injury. He was in a car accident, and his head had hit the windshield. He was in the hospital for three days, and Chris sustained a mild traumatic brain injury at that time. But there were no reports that this affected him past the time of the incident. Hmm. It sounded like he healed up just fine. That'd be hard to prove later on, though. It that would. it didn't affect the brain function later on. Right. But there was no noticeable effects from it. Right. His personality didn't change dramatically. His cognitive abilities, none, none of that had changed. Chris was athletic from a young age. He played football as a defensive end for five years and was really committed to the sport. It was said that he never missed a practice or a game. On all accounts, Chris seemed to have a great upbringing. There were no signs of substance abuse, and he seemed to come from a loving family. Like many kids during the 70s and 80s, Chris became interested in the fascinating world of wrestling. His interest would soon turn into a passion and a dream. And listeners, I'm curious, do you have a favorite wrestler growing up? Or a favorite wrestler now if you still watch? The Warrior. The Warrior was your favorite? <laughs> I'm pretty sure it was WrestleMania 6. I have to look it up now. But we used to watch that over and over and over again. I think it was because it was the only VHS at the cottage, but... <laughs> You probably had like the moves down with your brothers practicing yes. them. <laughs> I'm like going down memory lane. But I do remember the whole era of like Hulkamania and all of that going yeah. on. And then I remember a little bit too, once I was married and because my husband is a fan, then I watched a little bit when it was more like Stone Cold Steve Austin and, and that era. Chris had a favorite wrestler and that was Tom Billington. Tom's stage name was the Dynamite Kid and was one half of the British Bulldogs. Oh, I do know them. I remember them too. Chris also looked up to Brett the Hitman Hart, who is my husband's favorite wrestler of all time. <laughs> he was good too. Mm-hmm. And had tight pants. No, <laughs> Pink tight pants. <laughs> In his early teens, Chris was able to attend a local wrestling event where both the Dynamite Kid and Brett the Hitman Hart performed. And this is when his idolization of these two wrestlers began. After seeing the Dynamite Kid at the Edmonton Pavilion, Chris recalled, quote, I just idolized him. We had backyard wrestling matches, or I would be up in my room, kicking my bed, trying to clone him. I remember how he and Bret Hart stood out above everyone else. 
His first of many nicknames as a wrestler was Dynamite in honor of his idol, the Dynamite Kid. Aw. But can't you just picture this him as a kid, like him with his friends, you know, wrestling in the backyard? Yes. Jumping off your bed, clotheslining somebody. Yeah, Yeah. totally. (laughs) By the age of 12, Chris started an intense exercise and weightlifting regimen. That's quite intense. Mm -hmm. At 12? 12? Yeah. His father, Michael, told ABC News, quote, He was pretty much driven from the age of 12, 13 to get into the wrestling industry. Chris lifted weights every day. He was 13 years old, breaking records in high school in our basement. Oh, that's awesome. So before he was even in high school, he was breaking their records. Yeah. One day as a kid, Chris was pretending to wrestle with his pet Rottweiler and his dog won. His dog's face hit him on the jaw and knocked out one of his teeth. Chris didn't bother to get a fake one put in because he figured that his future wrestling career would just likely knock it back out one day. And I thought, that's commitment to his dream. The poor dog had to wrestle him? Well, they were pretending to wrestle. And then the dog like looked up and hit him in the chin, knocked out his tooth. So totally accidental. Don't come on us about Rottweilers. (laughs) The dog was not being aggressive. It was totally just play fighting Mm -hmm. and that happened. But I thought... It just paints such a picture of Chris as a child on how much he believed in this dream and how committed he was. By the time Chris turned 18 years old, he was ready to fully pursue his wrestling career and he knew exactly where he wanted to train. The Hart family had started a training center in the basement of their giant home in 1948. They trained many iconic wrestlers there, as well as other athletes. Stu Hart, the Hart family patriarch, created this facility in the basement of their mansion after he founded the famous Stampede Wrestling. If you're a real true fan, you will remember Stampede Wrestling. (laughs) His training was described as grueling. In fact, the facility was named the Dungeon. So you had to be pretty serious about your craft to train there. Stu Hart trained Chris and he quickly mastered his craft. He incorporated moves inspired by his two idols including their high-risk moves like the diving headbutt and the snap suplex. And yes, I watched videos of all the moves I mentioned in this case because I wanted to be able to visualize (laughs) what all these moves were. And are they fake, Christy? Not all of them, because the first time Chris tried the diving headbutt in a match, he landed it incorrectly and actually knocked the wind out of himself. (laughs) (laughs) Some of it is theatrical, but... They are still moves and still pose some danger. Yeah. But he remembers the first time knocking the wind out of himself, but he, he got it after that. Chris lived in Edmonton, but the dungeon was in Calgary. So he would drive 300 kilometers or 186 miles each week to train. He was extremely dedicated to his training throughout his entire career. If he messed up in the ring, he would train extra hard to make up for it afterwards. He sounded a little bit like a perfectionist. Oh, Absolutely. Which can be hard on your psyche. Yes. And we are going to talk about his psyche and what's going on throughout this case with Chris. In one documentary, it talked about how he had messed up a move with a fellow wrestler. And then when that wrestler went backstage, Chris was doing 500 squats as punishment to himself for messing up that move. Wow. Mm -hmm. And not that the other guy said anything about it. No, the other guy was fine about it. But Chris was the hardest on himself. Oh, okay. Which a lot of times, like if you think of even Olympic athletes, they are hardest on themselves and that's what drives them to that greatness. Mm -hmm. Not that it's a healthy way to be, but it did help to spur on his career. Or it's not necessarily unhealthy to challenge yourself either. No, that's right. There's just that balance. Absolutely. But he just wanted it so bad. When I say he was dedicated, he was dedicated. Wow. And like we said, from a young age. 
After six months of intense training, Stu thought that Chris was ready to make his debut at Stampede Wrestling. Stampede Wrestling was a big deal at the time. Many of the greats made their debut there. So is this like right before the chuck wagons? (laughs) I'm trying to think. Was it actually at Stampede? So this isn't to be confused with the Calgary Stampede that happens once a year. Okay. Stampede Wrestling was something that was happening downtown Calgary, but every week. Oh, okay. Yeah. In fact, my husband was able to go as a kid. He would take the C train with one of his brothers almost every Friday night to downtown Calgary to watch. And it is still one of his most favorite childhood memories, going to Stampede Wrestling. Oh, so no wonder how he likes wrestling so much. Yeah, it started from a young age. That makes so much more sense now. Right? And there were seven boys in his family too, so (laughs) there was probably a lot of play wrestling going on there. Chris's first match was on November 22nd, 1985 in Calgary, Alberta. It was a tag team match. Himself and the remarkable Rick Patterson against... Butch Moffat and Mike Hammer. They won the match when Chris pinned Butch Moffat with a sunset flip. And that's kind of a cool move because I watched that one too. (laughs) This first match would unknowingly put the rest of his life in motion. Chris became an international wrestling star with multiple nicknames and a lengthy list of title wins. I will touch on a few highlights because I feel like his career does play a role in what happens regarding this case. But honestly, I could spend the entire episode just sharing his career endeavors with you. Oh, wow. It was almost mind-boggling for me. There was just so much, so many titles, so many things that he participated in. So he was successful. Extremely. But I'll give you a little bit of an overview. Okay. Chris stayed with Stampede Wrestling from 1985 to 1989. His first title win was against Gamma Singh for the Stampede British Commonwealth Mid-Heavyweight Championship on March 18th, 1988. During this time with Stampede Wrestling, Chris won four international tag team and three additional British Commonwealth titles. And this would barely scratch the surface of all the titles Chris would go on to eventually win. Wow. And his family was super supportive? Super supportive. Chris stayed with Stu Hart Stampede Wrestling until it closed its rings in 1989. From Alberta, Chris's next adventure in wrestling took him to Japan. He would be part of the New Japan Pro Wrestling from 1986 to 1997. So there was a bit of travel and overlap. He was doing both, competing in Calgary and in Japan. Chris reportedly enjoyed his time in Japan and would arrange his schedule around events there. So was he teaching there or performing there? He was training and then performing there. Okay. His first year in Japan, actually, Chris wasn't even allowed to set foot in a ring at the New Japan Dojo. Instead, he did push-ups and he swept the floor. Like, it totally gave me Karate Kid vibes. Like, for the whole first year, he just had to kind of prove himself there. Right. When he did begin his training there, his training regimen was similarly brutal to his training at the dungeon in Calgary. So it's not like he went over there as a mentor, like, to teach them how to wrestle there. No. He was going and learning new skills. Yes. Oh. Yeah, and these skills he would bring back into Canada. That is cool. Yeah. And it just helped to really finish off his training. And he became actually one of like the most technical wrestlers that there was. Well, he would just be much more well-rounded. Mm-hmm. And both of the training places in Calgary and Japan were hard programs that he went through. By 1987, Chris was able to start touring in Japan and briefly donned the nickname the Pegasus Kid. And I think that was the only time that he had a mask. Most people will know Chris as Chris Benoit, not by any of these other names Mm. that he has. There wasn't one name. It wasn't like The Undertaker or, you know, who just keeps that name. The Ultimate Warrior. That's right. Now I want to go back and watch WrestleMania (laughs) 6. We need to do that for our next movie (laughs) night. Chris won a plethora of titles during this time frame. 
However, perhaps the most significant event to take place while competing in Japan was his match against fellow wrestler Eddie Guerrero. During their match, Chris kicked Eddie in the head, knocking him out cold. This began a significant, lifelong friendship between them. (laughs) You wouldn't think they would be friends after that. No, but in fact, they would become best friends and Eddie would have a huge impact on Chris's life. So isn't that the start of every beautiful friendship is a kick to the head? (laughs) Well, I dropped you on your head. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that is true. (laughs) My first concussion was brought to me by Melissa. Herself. (laughs) No, it was my fault, but it was in Melissa's truck. (laughs) I was not driving at the time. Listen to her. No compassion. Just like, nope, not my fault. (laughs) You're just like the WWF as you're going to find out. (laughs) Just kidding. But we're going to come back to Eddie because, like I said, this does play a significant part in his life. Chris was quickly becoming one of the most technically skilled wrestlers of all time. On Larry King Live, Chris Jericho, another wrestler, said about Chris, quote, He was almost, I'd say, like the Michael Jordan or Wayne Gretzky of his profession. He was that good. He influenced many, many wrestlers all around the world for 22 years and almost kind of changed the style of pro wrestling in this country because he spent a lot of time in Japan and kind of integrated the Japanese style, the Mexican style, and the hard-hitting Calgary style into the WWE and the WCW, the former company he worked for. Hmm. So well respected by his colleagues as well. I'm having a hard time figuring out where all this goes so wrong. I know, and wrong it does go. Because he sounds like a great guy. He a is. mentor, a friend. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we are going to talk about it. There's a lot of theories as to how this went so awry. I'm going to blame it on the steroids. We'll get there. A lot of people do blame steroids. It's not what I think, but it is definitely one of the theories. Is it because he's a perfectionist? (laughs) Melissa. I'm sorry. (laughs) You have to wait. (laughs) We're going to get there. (laughs) Just enjoy the journey. Okay. Okay. I have some theories. Hang on to those and we'll see if any of those theories are the same. I'll try. Okay. (laughs) Chris competed in the WCW, which is World Champion Wrestling in 1992 and 1993. The following two years, 1994 and 1995, he competed in the ECW, which is Extreme Championship Wrestling. He would later join the WWF, World Wrestling Federation, which was later renamed the WWE, World Wrestling Entertainment, from the year 2000 to his death in 2007. He became known as the Crippler after he broke a fellow wrestler, Sabu's neck at an ECW event called November to Remember. Was it a stunt gone wrong or did he mean to really do it? Well, I'll tell you exactly what happened. Okay. Just a few seconds into the match, Chris threw Sabu into the air, performing a face-first pancake bump, but Sabu tried to change directions while in the air to land on his back instead and ended up landing on his neck. So that's the one where they spin them up high and then they drop them and like step out from underneath of them so they fall flat on their face, right? Yes. So it was definitely accidental. Chris took this hard and broke down in the locker room at the thought of possibly paralyzing a fellow athlete. Thankfully, Sabu recovered and still wrestles today. Oh. But I felt like it's just hard to believe that a man who broke down at the thought of seriously injuring another man would later come to commit such horrible acts. By all accounts, Chris started out as a really nice guy, like you said earlier. So did he think he was protecting his family? No. Ugh. Well, I shouldn't say no, because nobody really knows what his personal motive was. Right. That's the thing with a suicide at the end is it's hard to know. Mm-hmm. That's why I don't like them. Not that they didn't get their justice. It's because I don't know the answers. Yeah, maybe. Especially if there's no notes left, right? Yeah. 
1995 to the year 2000, Chris was part of the reformed Four Horsemen. Their angle was to overthrow the widely popular Hulkamania that included Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage. Oh, cool. Remember, like, it was Hulkamania. Randy Savage was the one with the... He wasn't Honky Tonk Man. He was the one with the white hat and the frilly... Yeah. Yeah, vest. Yep. (laughs) It's all coming back to me now. (laughs) And Rowdy Roddy Piper. Yes. (laughs) I remember liking him, too. With his little skirt. Yeah, the names are so great. Yeah. (laughs) And their costumes. (laughs) Their costumes are really great, actually. I do agree. Chris continued to compete with and against the greatest of all wrestlers, becoming one himself in the process. As many of you know, wrestling is almost as much about theatrics as it is the sport. And that's where we get the great costumes and the personas and stuff. It makes it theatrical. Yeah. All of those yelling matches before the match. Yeah. Yep. The fake backstage scenes where they're bursting into each other's rooms and yelling. and Yeah. They're interrupting interviews. Exactly. The drama. The drama. See, men like drama just as much as we do. <laughs> During one of his on-camera feuds... Chris was pitted against fellow wrestler Kevin Sullivan. Their rivalry helped to sell out tickets to pay-per-view events. It was a really big rivalry. Lots of drama. Kevin was married to a beautiful woman named Nancy. Nancy was Kevin's on-screen valet. To intensify their dispute, Kevin accused Chris of having an affair with his wife. This was not true, but the fans ate it up. Of course they would. Yeah, like what bigger thing can you accuse someone of? (laughs) To keep the ruse going, Chris and Nancy had to pretend to have an affair. They started out holding hands in public. They made sure to be seen together and even shared hotel rooms. Was Chris married at this time? Yes. Okay. Yeah, Chris is married to his own wife, has two kids. Kevin's married to Nancy. What does his wife think about the ruse? Well, it was just a ruse to begin with. To begin with. Yes, because... In a tale as old as time, one thing led to another, and this fictitious romance eventually became a real one. Of course it did. You can only pretend for so long. What did they think was going to happen? Chris and Nancy fell in love and started an actual affair. And I wrote, oops. (laughs) Because Kevin was the one, and I don't know if Kevin started it or who wrote this into their... Oh, it was his publishing agent. (laughs) Probably, but yeah, we'll accuse him of this. And it did. The ratings went up. And like I said, the pay-per-views were selling out because people wanted to watch these two interacting with one another. But when you're holding hands, you're sharing hotel rooms, you're acting like you're a couple, they then became a couple. Well, what are you going to do for eight hours in a room together? (laughs) Practice wrestling moves. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And one thing led to another. That's right. (laughs) So as you can imagine, the disdain between Kevin and Chris grew immensely. Because now we ain't playing. (laughs) To what you may even consider hatred. And I thought, can you imagine what backstage actually must have been like when this was going on? Chris did, however, admit in an interview that he had a certain amount of respect for Kevin for not taking his anger out on Chris in the ring, despite blaming him for the end of his marriage with Nancy. Why wouldn't he take it out on the ring? They were able to keep it totally professional in the ring, which says a lot about the type of guy Kevin is. Yeah. And the type of guy Chris is. Absolutely. You think as soon as they got in the ring where it was an avenue where they could take it out on each other. Nope. It stayed professional. Wow. Yeah. It does speak to their professionalism then. It does. And their characters, I think. Okay, what happened to Chris's wife, though? Well, I'll tell you. But before that, this feud led to a retirement match for Kevin in 1997 at the Bash at the Beach, where Chris defeated him one last time, and Kevin switched his career to behind-the-scenes duties like booking. 
Wow. Yeah. That's a lot of defeats to take in one year. Lose that your is. wife, lose to the guy professionally that just took her away. And I don't know, maybe he was ready to be behind the scenes because he still worked for the Federation. Maybe he's all orchestrated. That's how he was going to retire. No, I think it was a pretend <laughs> affair and then became a real affair <laughs> that backfired. <laughs> Best laid plans. <laughs> So like I mentioned, Chris was also married at the time of the affair to a woman named Martina. They were married about 11 years and had a son named David in 1993 and a daughter, Megan, together in 1997. Again, I'm using their names as I have a quote from David later that I will share. So he's already in the media. Both Chris's and Nancy's marriages ended in 1997. So Nancy divorced Kevin, Chris divorced Martina, and the two were now free to live together. And sadly, I did read that Chris's daughter with Martina was born right around the same time as the divorce. Oh. So definitely a dirtbag move. So she would have been pregnant when this was happening. That is a dirtbag move. Yeah. It was rather right before or right after the divorce. That's crappy. This affair, as it turned out, wasn't a short-lived fling. Nancy gave birth to their son, Daniel, on February 25th, 2000. And they were married later that same year on November 23rd. This was Chris's second marriage and Nancy's third. Unfortunately, all wasn't well in paradise, and Nancy ended up filing for divorce in May of 2003. She also filed a restraining order against Chris. She said that Chris would break furniture by throwing it around. In the divorce filings, she claimed it was, quote, irrevocably broken, and she had undergone cruel treatment. Okay, what's happened to his personality all of a sudden? This is where I think the steroid use is amping up at this time. Yeah, where I do think he's starting to experience some roid rage and becoming more aggressive. Yeah, from going from a guy that cried because he thought he had hurt somebody permanently to now throwing furniture around and scaring his wife enough that she wants a divorce from him. Right. That's a big switch. It is a big switch. The couple never did divorce. She dropped the filings as well as the restraining order in August of the same year. Sadly, a decision with deadly consequences. There was talk of his explosive temper during his first marriage as well, but I don't know for sure if that was true or if that's just people saying in retrospect, but definitely his temper was flaring. Okay. But it was noted at this time that he was a user of steroids and a lot of people, like I said, were chalking this up to roid rage. Although there was trouble in his personal life, Chris's career seemed unstoppable. Altogether, he won 22 championships throughout his time at the ECW, NJPW, WCW, and the WWF, WWE. The most prestigious of his wins was becoming the world heavyweight champion twice, once in the WCW and once in the WWE. And this was a big deal in the wrestling world. That's like your highest achievement that you can get. At 5 foot 11 and 229 pounds, Chris Benoit was a force to be reckoned with. Because of his achievements, he was inducted into the Stampede Wrestling Hall of Fame in 1995 and then the Wrestling Observer Newsletter Hall of Fame in 2003. Dave Meltzer, one of the industry's historians, said that Chris was considered, quote, one of the top 10, maybe even the top five all-time greats. Oh, wow. I can't even mention all his wrestling achievements. There are literally too many to mention. But I think by now we can agree that he was elite in his craft. And then I have two little fun media facts. Chris was actually considered for the role of Wolverine in the famous X-Men movie, but for whatever reason, that didn't happen. And there is a clip of Bret Hart applying his famous sharpshooter finishing hold on Chris in the opening credits of every single episode of Malcolm in the Middle. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. 
Chris's fame and fortune came at a price, a price paid by his body. He sustained injury on a regular basis, including multiple head injuries and concussions. In 2001, Chris was in a TLC match, and TLC means tables, ladders, and chairs. That's what they would use to fight with. Chris attempted a flying headbutt move through a table and landed badly, injuring his neck. He went backstage for a moment, but then he came back out and finished the match. He didn't realize how bad his injury was. That's insane. Mm -hmm. Not long after, Chris re-injured his neck at a WWF triple threat match. He performed a back suplex off the rope onto his opponent. This time, he knew he hurt himself bad. He told the ref he was hurt, and the ref told Stone Cold Steve Austin to pin Chris to end the match. Apparently, people knew something was wrong when Chris just let himself be pinned for the three seconds to end the match. Oh, wow. Chris had slipped a disc, which moved into his spinal column. Chris underwent surgery and was back in the ring just a year later. No way. Yeah. There's talks later of how family wanted him to just retire. And Nancy actually, as it was getting closer to the end, was really wanting him to retire because wrestling was taking its toll on him physically and mentally. But you look at how much effort he's put in since a little child. That's all he's ever known. Like that would be such a hard thing to give up. Yeah, he's never done anything else. He's never wanted to do anything else. Mm -hmm. And so to admit that your body can't keep up with you, that would be so difficult. Yeah. And he's doing well. Mm -hmm. It's not even like, oh, you're not winning any matches. You're not doing that great. Let's just quit. Yeah. No, you're on the top of your game still. So is he going to get another head injury or does he get addicted to (laughs) painkillers? Well, actually, I'm going to talk about something else that puts him on a decline. Okay. So things started to really decline for Chris emotionally on November 13th, 2005, when his best friend, Eddie Guerrero, was found dead in his hotel room. Oh, no. He died from acute heart failure and was unable to be resuscitated by paramedics when they arrived. Eddie was only 38 years old. Oh, that's brutal. Mm -hmm. And they were all together at the same hotel. Mm -hmm. From the one documentary I watched, Eddie's nephew, Chavo, found him and was holding him in his arms as this was happening. He was still breathing at that time. But yeah, he died from acute heart failure. Chris took the death of his best friend extremely hard. He was devastated. He would hold a brave face in front of others for the most part. But behind closed doors, he was falling apart. He would go to Eddie's house lay on Eddie's side of the bed, and cry his heart out. Oh, man. The night after Eddie's death, Raw held a tribute show hosted by Raw and SmackDown wrestlers in Eddie's honor. Chris broke down multiple times on camera over the loss of his friend. The other time that he broke down sobbing was at Eddie's funeral. That's brutal. Mm -hmm. But his best friend, his contemporary, right? That would make him recognize his own mortality. Probably. Yeah. Many people said that he was never the same after this event. It changed him. Chris reportedly would write in a journal, writing letters to his friend Eddie after his passing. It was said that the letters were more like ramblings and made those who read it afterwards concerned for Chris's mental health at the time. So it wasn't just your therapeutic, Mm -hmm. you know, write them a letter to say goodbye. Chris would fight for the last time in the ring on June 19th, 2007. He defeated Elijah Burke and won the right to fight for the ECW World Championship at Vengeance on June 24th. So this was a chance to win a third world championship title. Oh. Because he's already won two, which is really remarkable. Now he's He's won the right to go win a third. When Chris didn't show up to the championship match, the crowd was chanting, we want Benoit over and over again. 
having no idea the horrible events that had already occurred in the Benoit home miles away. Oh, no. The weekend leading up to the main event, Chris was scheduled to make public appearances, attend house shows, which means non-televised matches, and a pay-per-view event. Officials were told that he couldn't make it due to a family emergency. His wife and son were vomiting due to food poisoning. The day that Chris was scheduled to fight for his third world championship was instead the day he would take his last breath. It all began a few days prior to this on June 22, 2007. Chris was at home with his wife Nancy and son Daniel. No one will ever know what set Chris off, but inside his family home in Fayetteville, Georgia, Chris bound Nancy's arms and legs in a room upstairs. She was laying face down. He pressed his knee into her back and then placed a cord around her neck. He pulled until he had strangled her to death. When her body was found, there was blood under her head, suggesting that she tried to fight back, but was it even a fair fight? He was a massively strong man who wrestled for a living. Where did the blood come from? It didn't say, just that there was blood underneath. So I don't know oh, if they fought, and she was fought a little bit head. beforehand before he got her to the ground. It did indicate that she fought back, but evidence concluded that there was no signs of immediate struggle, meaning that he was able to subdue her quickly. Nancy was only 43 at the time of her death. And like uh-huh. I said, how would she even be able to defend yeah. herself against this man? Who's trained since he was 12 to take down people. Yeah. And no lead up. No lead up. Like no. He, we have no idea why he went after her. Nope. And why Chris, he tied her up. Yeah, he bound her. Her wrists and her ankles were bound. And do they know how long she was tied up for before she died? I think it was pretty quick because okay. there was no real signs of a struggle. I think he bound her, put her on her stomach, kneeled on her, and strangled her to death. There wasn't like prolonged bruising around the ligature. No. Okay. Not that I was able to find. And this was so out of character because I did read in other accounts that Chris, while he was traveling, he would go out of his way to make stops to come home to see Nancy and Daniel. Like family was really important to him. Mm -hmm. Around 3.30 p.m. the next day on June 23rd, Chris left a voicemail message for Chavo Guerrero. So this is Eddie's Mm -hmm. nephew. Chris stated that he had overslept and missed his flight for that night's house show in Beaumont, Texas. Chavo called Chris back. And Chris had just restated the story he had left on the voice message. Chavo later said that Chris sounded groggy and tired. Something seemed off with his tone and demeanor. So Chavo called Chris back 12 minutes later, but Chris never answered. Chris called Chavo back at 344 and told Chavo that he hadn't answered his call because he was on the phone trying to change his flight. Because he had said, oh, I slept in and missed my flight, but I'm still coming. He then told Chavo that he had a stressful day because his wife and son were sick with food poisoning. Chavo told him to let him know if he needed anything, and Chris made a point of telling Chavo that he loved him, which to me means he was saying goodbye. Yeah, he was saying goodbye. Yeah. And this is after he's already killed Nancy. Right. This is the next day. Another co-worker called Chris to see where he was, and Chris told them the same story about Nancy and Daniel being sick. He said Nancy had even been throwing up blood and that Daniel was also vomiting. Early the next morning, Chris sent five text messages to Chavo Guerrero and referee Scott Armstrong. All five messages were sent between 3.51 a.m. and 3.58 a.m. using both Chris's and Nancy's phones. So he was using Nancy's phone. Four of the messages were just the address of Chris and Nancy's home. That was it. The fifth message said that the family's dogs were in the enclosed pool area and that the garage side door was left open. Oh, that's, that's all it said. So disturbing. That yeah. would set alarm bells off so much. If you got those text messages, 
Well, Chavo actually woke up when he received the text, but he was planning to see Chris in just a few hours at eight o'clock in the morning when he was supposed to pick him up from the airport. So he just went back to sleep. But it's four o'clock in the morning. You just look at it not really understanding. And that's the furthest thing from your mind, to be honest. In retrospect, we can say that. Right. And we study true crime. And we study true crime. (laughs) Exactly. That may have, you know, raised some more red flags for us. But he was groggy, woke up in the middle of the night, saw this and was like, okay, I'll see him in literally four hours. I'll see him. Oh, that's too bad. Chris never made it to any of the events in Texas. After WWE was notified of the messages sent to Chavo and Scott by Chris, And after they hadn't heard from Chris, after he had missed his scheduled appearances and fights, they requested that the Fayette County Sheriff's Department performed a wellness check on Chris and his family. Not until after? Like how much later in the day is that? So this happened in the weekend. Nancy was killed on Friday. He talked to Chavo on Saturday. Sunday early in the morning. He sent text messages. Yep. So this is now Monday, Mm -hmm. the next day. And they're like, this is not like Chris. He didn't show up. Like what's happening? They call the police. Can you send someone over there to check on them? Okay. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like not showing up to work Monday morning kind of thing, right? But he had these commitments for the whole weekend. He should have been in Texas. He didn't show up to anything on Sunday. Why weren't they sending somebody over Sunday afternoon? Because he had told them that Nancy and Daniel were sick, that they had food poisoning. I believe he'd even said I had to take them to the doctors, like to the hospital. And so they were just thinking he was having a family emergency. Was it Monday morning at 3 a.m. that he sent the text messages? Sunday. So they still had all Sunday day. Because Chris has given them a reason that he's not there. Right. He's saying, my family is sick. And that's Mm -hmm. what they're believing. To send your address that many times and then be like, and the dogs are in the pool enclosure. Yeah. And the garage side door is open. open. That would be huge alarm bells. No? To anybody. It would. But this was the championship match. There would have been a lot going on. They weren't just sitting at their house wondering where Chris is. The championship match that he's supposed to be at. Yeah. Like you think so you'd send a car over to be like, hey, buddy, here, I'll take care of your kids so you can go to your championship match. Yeah, that did not happen. It wouldn't have changed anything either way had they found him earlier. No, sadly not. Authorities arrived at the Benoit home around 2.30 p.m. and had no idea the scene they were about to encounter. They found Nancy still bound and strangled upstairs. Chris had covered her with a towel and placed a Bible near her body. Sadly, they found seven-year-old Daniel dead as well. He had been suffocated to death in his bedroom. There was also a Bible left close to his body. Upon examination of his body, it was reported that Daniel had internal injuries to his throat but didn't have any visible bruising. There was Xanax in his system, suggesting that Chris had sedated him before ending his young life, so he wouldn't be aware of what was happening. He was likely unconscious at the time. His exact time of death is unknown, but he was likely murdered after his mother, possibly the next day. They came to this conclusion because of the differing levels of decomposition in his tiny body compared to his mom's. So he murdered Nancy on the Friday, Friday, Daniel on Saturday, and then himself on Sunday. And he just stayed in the house with them. Yeah. There was a butcher knife found under Daniel's bed, but it had not been used in either murder. So I'm not sure why that was there. Oh, Do you think Daniel had put it there to protect himself from his dad? No, we talk a little bit later about Chris's paranoia. And I think Chris had put it there just in case. Oh, okay. If he had to run into his son's room to defend him, he wanted a weapon in that room. That's just, according to Christy, that's just what I think. Okay. Yeah. That's not what the authorities or anybody else has said. But as we go on, that's what I think. Or maybe he was planning to use it and then didn't. But with him drugging his son so he's unconscious, he yeah. did not want it to be a brutal murder. No. So. Whose fingerprints were on the knife? 
I don't know. It wasn't used in the murder. It wasn't really right. taken in as evidence. Just it was noted that they had found one. Because wouldn't you want to protect yourself from your yeah. dad if he had murdered your mom? There was no indication at all that Daniel was afraid of his father. Okay. In fact, it's the opposite. Okay. Daniel was described as kind, smart, and an affectionate boy. They said he was very similar to Nancy. He had a lot of her loving qualities. He loved animals, including his two dogs, and loved to ride horses. He adored his mom and always wanted her to tell him wrestling stories. Daniel idolized his dad. He loved to watch Chris wrestle and decorated his room with posters and action figures of his dad. So his dad was totally his hero. Little did he know that the man he looked up to and loved the most would take his young life. That's so sad. Chris, at the age of 40, was found dead in his home gym. He had committed suicide by hanging himself from the cord on his pull-down machine. He set the weights larger than his body weight, made a noose in the cord, and then he pulled out the weight pin. It lifted and broke his neck instantly. That would take some thinking. It did take some thinking. And they did actually find search history on Chris's computer from that weekend, showing that he had researched the quickest and easiest way to break a neck. And so was that search history before Friday or after Friday? It didn't say when, it just said from that weekend. Mm. There was a third Bible close to where Chris's body was found on his weight machine. So each of their bodies had a Bible close by. And was he a religious person? He wasn't, but Eddie Guerrero was. And he really respected Eddie. Mm -hmm. And I believe that Eddie had tried to share some of that with him. And I actually heard that Eddie had given him a Bible and Chris took that everywhere with him. So I think it was the influence that he had from Eddie. But maybe he was on his own spiritual path. I don't know. WWE was notified around 4.45 p.m. that three bodies had been discovered at the Benoit home. Almost immediately, the WWE released a three-hour-long tribute to Chris's life and career, not yet knowing that the deaths of his family had been the work of his own hands. (gasps) Oh, whoops. Yep. They promptly shut it down once they found out what had actually taken place. How did they have something ready that quick? Well, there had been another documentary before done on Chris's life beforehand. So I think they took clips of that and just other interviews. They just put a whole compilation together. But it was a three hour long tribute to Chris and his achievements. That's crazy. Yeah, that would be a big whoops. But they didn't know. All they heard is that there's a crime scene here and we have found three bodies. You would think that you would get your facts straight first. There was no initial suicide note found. However... There was a note later discovered in another Bible that had been sent to Martina, Chris's first wife, and their two children. Chris's father, Michael Benoit, later said, quote, There was a note that was found in a Bible by the mother of Chris's two children that lives in Canada. The Bible was mixed in with Chris's personal belongings that were shipped to them. He had a handwritten notation in there saying, quote, I'm preparing to leave this earth. Other than this note, there was nothing left by Chris stating why he did what he did. But there are lots of theories which we will look at. That's so sad. Yeah. I think everyone just wishes there would be a note just to know what was going on in Chris's mind. What was his reasoning? Well, because it seemed like he had this pretty charmed life. Yeah. On the outside looking in, he had everything. Yeah. Despite theories that someone else could have committed these heinous acts, police had no reason to believe that what happened over this three-day span was anything but a murder-suicide committed by Chris Benoit. Some believe it was Nancy's ex-husband, Kevin Sullivan, but there was nothing to indicate that he held a grudge and he had moved on with a new wife and started a family. And I personally don't think there's any merit to that theory. Well, no, because there would be evidence to suggest that. Yeah. But I just wanted to put that in there because a lot of people believe, oh, it was probably Kevin. Yeah. Had to be. Right. Jealous ex-lover. Ex-husband even. Yeah. But no, he had moved on. 
At first, everyone assumed that Chris's behavior was due to his long-term use of steroids. Roid rage is caused by taking anabolic steroids and can cause users to experience outbursts of anger, violence, and aggression. Toxicology reports had been administered to all three bodies and the results came back on July 17th. At the time of their deaths, Nancy had three different drugs in her system, Xanax, hydrocodone, and hydromorphone, all of them at therapeutic rather than toxic levels. Was she getting over an injury too? Well, the Xanax treats depression and anxiety, the hydrocodone can treat coughs and pain, and the hydromorphone is a painkiller. I'm not sure if she had an injury or why she was taking them. Nancy was also found with alcohol in her body, but it was unclear if it was consumed before she died or was a result of decomposition, which I didn't know that your body would produce alcohol when it's Mm -hmm. decomposing. So that was something new I learned while researching (laughs) this. At any rate, they did not suspect that Nancy had been drugged purposefully by Chris. The levels of everything were all within normal ranges. Okay. As I mentioned earlier, Daniel did have Xanax in his system. It is believed that Chris drugged him so that he would be unconscious during his death. He had higher levels. Okay. Chris also had Xanax in his system, along with hydrocodone and an elevated level of synthetic testosterone, so steroids. The chief medical examiner believed Chris was being treated for hormone deficiency caused by previous steroid abuse and or testicular insufficiency, which can happen when you take steroids, so don't do it. (laughs) These findings suggest that there was no indication of roid rage being the cause of Chris's outburst and murderous rampage. There was an investigation into the doctor who was prescribing the steroids. I believe he actually ended up doing jail time for overprescribing steroids, but there's just no time to get into that case. But that was just a little side note that I wanted to put in there. Overprescribing to Chris or just overprescribing in general? In general to many wrestlers. Gotcha. It was also noted that there was no alcohol in Chris's system at the time of his death. So he wasn't intoxicated while this was going on. Previously, Chris had been taking medications illegally. And I may say some of these wrong. So just a disclaimer there. But he was taking nandrolone, anabolic steroids, anastrozole, and a breast cancer medication that bodybuilders take because of its anti-estrogenetic effects. These were not found in his system at the time of his death. So he had stopped taking them. Mm. Which would support the theory that it wasn't roid rage. Right. I also want to mention that in Chris's autopsy report, it showed that he also had a severely enlarged heart. It weighed 620 grams, which is double the weight of a normal average healthy heart. It also showed left ventricular hypertrophy and bilateral atrioventricular dilation, which is a common finding in wrestlers who abuse steroids and human growth hormones. Absolutely. These findings could suggest that Chris may have died sooner than later of heart failure. Mm Mm-hmm. Even though steroid use was not likely the cause of this particular incident, the murder-suicide of the Benoit family has forced the wrestling world to take a closer look at the abuse of steroids amongst their athletes. Even a federal investigation took place because of this case. It makes sense. If that's what everybody was thinking, like, ah, it must have been his roid rage. It's a big enough problem that we should be looking into it then. Right. And they tested wrestlers and there was a huge number that Mm -hmm. were on steroids at the time. But sadly, when I kind of looked into it, it didn't seem like there was a whole lot that changed from that investigation. That's too bad. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to note here, too, that the method he chose to murder his family, as well as the Bibles being placed by their bodies, did not indicate rage. No, not at all. He did not murder them in a rageful, brutal manner. He didn't beat them. He didn't. Right. Like he had the forethought to give his son Xanax. 
He wanted that to be peaceful. Yeah, that doesn't sound like roid rage at all. No, covered his wife with a towel, had Bibles by their bodies. Some people still believe that this is probably the cause. I think the steroids leading up to it do play a factor Mm -hmm. in his paranoia and things that were going on in his life leading up to it. But I don't think it's the only cause of what happened. Mm -hmm. It's hard to emotionally regulate when your hormones are out of whack. Right. The next thing to look at was the effects that wrestling had taken on Chris's brain. Many believe that Chris had been suffering from repeated untreated concussions for his career spanning over more than two decades, ultimately leading to an unstable mental state. And this is the theory that I lean towards. But to happen all of a sudden, I guess there was a gradual decline after the death of his friend. There was. And the 18 months leading up to this, Mm -hmm. we'll talk about more of a decline that takes place. A fellow wrestler stated that Chris, quote, was one of the only guys who would take a chair shot to the back of the head. Chris's brain was examined by the head of neurosurgery at West Virginia University, Julian Bales. Results showed that Chris Benoit's brain was so severely damaged that it resembled the brain of an 85-year-old Alzheimer's patient. Wow. And he's 40. I guess the other people were smart not to take the chair to the back of the head. Yeah. Many did, but Chris was one of the few that always would take that chair. Yeah. Tess also revealed that Chris was suffering from CTE, which is chronic traumatic encephalopathy, which is a degenerative brain disease. CTE can be common in pro boxers and professional football players as well. They actually came out with a gyroscope helmet for football players because of it. Yeah, it is really common. Yeah. Chris had brain damage in all four lobes of his brain and his brain stem. This is significant damage to find in a 40-year-old physically fit man. Yeah, that's crazy. Julian Bales and his colleagues concluded that repeat concussions can lead to dementia, which can lead to severe behavioral issues. And reportedly, one-third of people living with dementia display some form of aggressive behavior. They change because their brains are changing. Absolutely. Chris's family seemed to lean towards this being the cause of the double murder-suicide committed by their son. I tend to agree with this angle of thinking. The WWE dismissed the idea as speculative. (laughs) Well, because it looks super bad on them. Right. They're going to continue to hit people with chairs. Yeah. And we will talk more about how the WWE handled this case. And honestly, it left such a bad taste in my mouth. You're no longer a wrestling fan? Not the higher-ups of the WWE, I'm not. And maybe I'm going to get sued after saying all of this, but they were terrible with this anyway. To go along with the idea of brain damage contributing to Chris's actions, there has been a lot of talk in retrospect about his behavior leading up to the events. Mm. Chris had not been himself for months and was growing more erratic and paranoid. So here now we're going to look at the 18 months before. Okay. Nancy's sister and nanny, Sandy Toffoloni, spoke with wrestler Chris Jericho on his podcast, Talk is Jericho, about Chris Benoit after the murder of her sister and nephew. I'll share a few quotes, but it's episode 259 if you want to give it a listen. He also has a 10-year episode about Chris Benoit that may interest you. And that's coming from a wrestler, Mm -hmm. so he would give you more of that aspect of it. I'll refer to Chris Jericho just as Jericho so it doesn't get confusing while discussing Chris Benoit. So I'm not like, this Chris, this Chris. (laughs) Okay. Jericho mentions that he started to notice things in the last year and a half of Chris's life. He started to call him Houdini because he would just suddenly disappear. They'd be hanging out in a bar or in the arena, and then all of a sudden Chris would just be gone without saying anything to anyone. 
where would he go? He would just leave. They wouldn't okay. know. That's why he called him Houdini. Like he'd be there one second and then he'd just be gone. He also called him the Loch Ness Monster because he would surface just once in a while and it would just be a quick little surface. He might call you, but Jericho said if you missed that one call, it was like Chris went back under water and you wouldn't hear from him for another month. Okay. So this is some erratic behavior yeah. leading up. Sandra said she noticed Chris becoming paranoid. She said, quote, what really became noticeable was a little bit more of like a sense of unsafeness and paranoia for the family. Like he would just constantly be checking the alarm at night, constantly be checking things. And for himself, like when we would go to the gym and things like that, he would take different ways every time. Oh, so he would take different routes to the same gym. He'd go at different times of the day and he would even take different vehicles. So he wasn't always driving the same one. Interesting. That is huge paranoia. Yeah, it's really escalating. Sandra continued to say, quote, there was never any issues like that. So when it did start happening, it was something I noticed immediately. Like, what is the deal with this? What is going on? And he seemed to have a little bit more short patience with things. Um, just that not having its sensibility over certain things. Going into Publix and getting food and stuff. He didn't want to do that anymore. He wanted, you know, he'd tell me what he wanted and send me. Or if Nancy and I were out during the day, he'd just call and say, pick this up. It was a huge personality change. Not crazy huge where everyone else would notice, but the people around him a lot would notice. Interesting. There are other reports of Chris's behavior becoming more paranoid and erratic leading up to the deaths. And this was from the guy who never missed a football game or practice. You know, he was so mm -hmm. dedicated to everything and now he's starting to miss things. He's leaving things. He's changing his paths you know, his routines. And he's 40. He's 40. When this happens. Yeah. So that's a little late for schizophrenia to come on. Yeah. There's no indication yeah. that he had schizophrenia. So let's talk briefly about how the WWE handled this case. The reason I said it left a sour taste in my mouth is because to me, it seems as though the WWE just wanted to push the murder-suicide under the rug and distance themselves as quickly and as much as possible from Chris Benoit. Well, that would make sense. It would be bad publicity. It would. But in my opinion, they missed out on a valuable opportunity to examine what is happening and how to avoid things like this from happening in the future. Mm -hmm. They seem to only be concerned about saving face. Which, in the long run, they could have saved a lot more face had they addressed it. Right. I think it would have shed a more positive light on their company. WWE removed all mentions and videos of Chris as they possibly could. They were not able to remove his title histories and wins, but they removed any articles about him as well as his tribute, which included personal tributes by his peers. They edited out his matches from scheduled programming and removed all Chris Benoit merchandise. They went back and edited Chris's matches out of as many archive videos as they could. Wow. They're just trying to erase him from the wrestling world like he didn't exist. How does that ever work? I know. So if you go back, he may have competed in some of those and it's been erased. You can't watch it anymore. It wouldn't show up on my VHS. No. <laughs> Maybe he was there. No, I don't know what year that was. His signature was erased from the WWE SmackDown vs. Raw 2008 video game and removed his playable character. The list goes on. It's a long list. And I don't disagree with some of their choices, like removing his merchandise and taking the character out of the video game. But I feel like pretending like Chris never existed and none of this happened is not appropriate either. No. How do you learn from something if you're not going to acknowledge it happened? Exactly. Yeah. It was just like they wanted to like, oh, delete button. Chris never existed. He was never part of our team. The Wrestling Observer Newsletter Hall of Fame tried to have Chris removed from the Hall of Fame. 
It was put to a vote, and by a narrow win, his name remains a member of the honor. I guess you need 60% vote to remove someone, and the vote regarding Chris was 53.6% in favor of removing him from the Hall of Fame. Oh, see, now, and that's one of the ones that I was like, oh, maybe they should remove him from that one. He's still in there. Okay. Yeah. Which shows kind of how torn people are Mm -hmm. about it. And it's different when you're talking about a celebrity. Like, we don't have to worry about this type of stuff is what I mean. When we're talking about regular dirtbags and murderers, we're not having to think about what should be removed from their past. Like, what should be taken away, right? But that's an honor, right? That is an honor. That's not removing his history. That's an honor bestowed upon him. Right. And so to me, that one's like, that's an easy, no, he shouldn't have that anymore. Right. A former co-worker, Kurt Angle, said, quote, this is not the WWE's fault and this is not Vince McMahon's fault. Chris Benoit was responsible for his own actions. And if you don't know, Vince McMahon is the CEO of WWE. Which in a way I have to agree with. He's the one that did that to his family. It is his personal responsibility. And he chose to continue to keep fighting. Absolutely. I believe it's not WWE's fault. Yeah. But I don't believe that Chris would have done this had he not been a wrestler. Right. Had these things not happened. And that's what's frustrating me about how WWE handled this is they did not try to use this as a learning experience. Yeah. They're just shaking their hands. Not our fault. Not us. Nope. Mm -hmm. Chris who? Who are you talking about? I haven't seen him. Yeah. Right? Which I don't agree with. That is not right. But to say that it's like McMahon's fault, how does somebody make that jump? Eric Bischoff said on his website, quote, It's clear that the media wants to blame steroids, professional wrestling, Vince McMahon, or anyone or anything else that further sensationalizes this family tragedy. I refuse to join the choir. I don't have enough information. I wasn't there. I am not a psychiatrist. I just can't imagine how or why this could have happened. And I agree. You cannot put blame on one thing directly. Mm -mm. But all I can say is putting your head in the sand like an ostrich does not prevent further tragedy from occurring or erase the ones that just happened. Wake up and address the issues. Would Chris have murdered his wife and son and then killed himself if he wasn't a pro wrestler? And I'm not defending Chris's actions, but just saying that maybe a tragedy like this could be avoided in the future. Yeah, if they pay attention and make changes. When your brain is being turned into an 85-year-old Alzheimer patient with damage in every single lobe of your brain because of your job, Mm -hmm. I don't think the job can just totally shake their hands of that. No. I believe that currently a lot of these old dangerous moves are no longer allowed or have at least been altered in the WWE. I think it's very rare for anyone to take a chair to the head anymore. But there is still a lot to consider since they are still at risk for brain and other injuries. Mm -hmm. And this furthers my feelings about this because there was a study in 2014 by Eastern Michigan University that examined the lifespans of professional wrestlers between 1985 and 2011. They found that mortality rates for professional wrestlers are almost three times greater than the rate for men in the rest of the U.S. population and in comparison to other athletes. They contribute the physical nature of their jobs, the high workload, there's no off-season like other athletes get to enjoy, and drug abuse. Other studies have looked at the cardiovascular strain on wrestlers, as well as mental health and physical damages as contributing factors in the high mortality rate. The average lifespan of a professional wrestler is only 61 years. That's not a big surprise to me, actually. But I thought that was actually an alarming number. Only 61 in our day and age? What is the national average? 78 for a man? Yeah. So that's quite a bit lower. That is quite a bit lower. Yeah, it's not just a couple years that we're talking about. Vince McMahon said, quote, Nothing from the WWE, under any set of circumstances, had anything at all to do with Chris Benoit murdering his family. 
how would we know that Chris Benoit would turn into a monster? Uh, because she kept encouraging him to take chairs to the back of the head. Right? And we're profiting over that. They're yeah. making good money off of Chris. And this is why it rubs me the wrong way. Because they took such a high horse defensive approach about mm. it. Under any set of circumstances, we didn't have anything at all to do with what happened. He just turned into a monster. There's a culture there that you're brewing that needs to be addressed. Yeah. We're calling a little bit of BS there, yeah. Vince McMahon. And I think that's why, like, Vince just, he rubbed me the wrong way. Because he didn't even say any of it with compassion. Just nothing. Just, nope, he's a monster. We had nothing to do with it. Yes, Chris did turn into a monster. And he did murder his family. But I don't believe that Vince and the WWE are oblivious to the strain, drug use, and head injuries that were being inflicted on its wrestlers. They knew full well what was going on. I also want to point out that reportedly, not one representative from WWE, including Vince McMahon, reached out to Nancy's family after the murders. Not a classy move. No. I believe they sent one person to attend the memorial just to save face. That was really? it. Really? Yeah. Fellow wrestlers Chris Jericho and Chavo Guerrero took it upon themselves to go above and beyond to help and be there for Nancy's family and Chris's family. So they were the two like stand-up guys I felt through this whole thing. So hats off to them. A memorial took place on July 14th, 2007 in Daytona Beach, Florida for Nancy and Daniel. They were both cremated and their ashes were placed in starfish-shaped urns and given to Nancy's family. There was a private memorial for Chris on August 6, 2007 in Ardrossan, Alberta. He was also cremated. Michael Benoit, Chris's father, was interviewed after the murders and suicide, and he spoke about how no one really saw this coming. He talked about how he would have set his son in a totally different direction if he had realized what was going to happen. Mm -hmm. He felt somewhat responsible for encouraging his son to realize his dream. And I just thought that was so sad. And I hope that both Chris's and Nancy's families have been able to find the healing and closure needed since this case. Because it would have affected both families. Absolutely. When Chris's firstborn son turned 27, he gave a statement about his dad. David Benoit turned 14 the year his father murdered his stepmom, half-brother, and then took his own life. David is convinced that the men who committed these heinous acts are not who his father really was. He said, quote, It wasn't him, man. It definitely wasn't. He would never do that. I know he wouldn't. I think something terribly went wrong. The doctor said he had CTE. That's what, at the beginning, gave me some closure. It just made my life a little easier. Didn't have to think about it. He had CTE. I don't think it was him. David was in such shock that he punched the police officer when he first found out about his dad. He was living in Edmonton at the time. He said, quote, I didn't believe it for days, bro. I think the day it really hit me was his funeral. That was a hard day. That was a super hard day. The last day that David spoke to his father, Chris, was on Father's Day, not long before the murders. They were able to speak for two hours, not knowing it would be the last time. He said, quote, we were just laughing and getting ready to make plans for the summer. I got to say I love you one last time to him. By that, it doesn't even sound like maybe Chris even knew at that point that that's what he was going to be doing. Yeah. I don't know how long it was planned. That would have been just a couple of weeks before, right? Yeah, that they spoke. Uh huh. I'll end with one last quote from Chris Benoit. During an interview, he was asked if he was worried about the dangerous lifestyle of a wrestler. He responded, quote, whatever is going to happen is going to happen. And knowing what we know now makes that so chilling to me. Oh, yeah. 
And that is the sad and tragic case of a man who had it all, but ended up hurting those he loved most and should have protected from predators like the one he became. The famous wrestler who possibly experienced his own personal wrestler mania, Christopher Benoit. That's so crazy and so sad. It is such a sad case. And because there's no closure to it. You don't know why it happened. Right. Because he wasn't a dirtbag dad. No. I think it was an accumulation of all of these things going on. The unchecked paranoia. I think the steroids increased his aggression and his anger and then the head injuries and all of it. And maybe like you said, with Eddie passing away, maybe that made him realize his own mortality and that might have added to his paranoia. Mm -hmm. Like even the timing of it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. No, he should have been getting ready to go to the third championship that he could have won. That he'd worked for his whole life. Yeah. And that's tragic. It is. I had a lot of mixed feelings while I was going through this case. Because he really didn't seem like a dirtbag at all. No, but committed the most ultimate dirtbag move by murdering his family. Absolutely. Yeah. The ones that he was supposed to protect. Exactly. There was something going on in his head for sure. Mm -hmm. But we'll just never know what tipped him off, why that day, what happened. But like, go tell your dads you love them. And dads, go give your wife and your kids a hug. (laughs) Yes, only hugs. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And if somebody wants you to take a chair to the back of the head, tell them no. Yeah, it doesn't matter how much money. (laughs) Yeah. So sorry for ruining your day. (laughs) (laughs) But do enjoy your Father's Day this weekend. Have a great week, everyone. See ya. Bye. professionals now i remember the plague of daytime recording (laughs) the trucks (laughs) the little like speedos that they wear sometimes chris had what we would chris had what we would no there's no we why do i put we in there both times (laughs) now i know what i need to get your husband for christmas (laughs) Uh, yes please There'll be a smackdown at our house. This wasn't supposed to go this direction. Where did you think it was going to go? We're talking about men in tights. I guess. Oh, no. So the worldwide, or the world, what is it called? We need to go get our toes done, too. Hulk Hogan. Let's get ready to rumble. <laughs> I said, enjoy the journey. <laughs> Whose fingerprints? Damn it. Hulk Hogan's. There's no porcupine in this story. No porcupine. The Wrestling Observer News Hall. The Wrestling Observer News Hall. News Hall. Newsletter. The Wrestling Observer. Uh, huh. I'm going to make myself do 500 squats when I've done this. No, that's not healthy for you. True. But it would be good for the booty. (laughs) Not that many times. Nope. I might like to hit me once for a really good amount of money, but not repeatedly. Hey, we're live, pal. And we'd love for you to come check out our podcast, Tales from the Estate. Each week, we talk about our top five favorite somethings. My beautiful wife, Caitlin, likes to share all sorts of random facts. Yeah. Did you know that cows have accents?
We did now. But we also review all sorts of snacks and other great things. And so if you love everything random, I think you'd enjoy Tales from the Estate. So come check us out. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Bye. I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent, almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.